Hey Bene, this is Rina Deepthi Anabil, aka Mummy Imperfect, and you're listening to the Sisterhood of Mummy Imperfect, the podcast where you get your weekly dose of girl chat, the place where we tell it like it is, and where I speak to fierce and fabulous females who are changing the world one bit at a time. My guest this episode is someone who has experienced tragedy, a woman who stands out, but who has taken time to come to terms with how she stands out with her appearance and how other people view her. A woman who has chosen to be a survivor. She's an influential speaker, a Pilates coach, a confidence coach, amongst many other things. And her name is Tulsi. Tulsi Vagiani. And I um, don't, she might tell me off for mispronouncing that in a minute. Let me see. Welcome to the sisterhood of Mommy and Perfect, Tulsi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? And it was perfect. Oh, was okay, fine. Journey, so, yep, <laughs> spot on. <laughs> Dulce, it's so nice to have you on here. How are you oh, doing? Oh, it's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so, listen, I, I found your story really fascinating. And I just recently came across you. Um, I think it was on Insta. Um, somehow, I don't know, I stumbled across you. And, you know, I read some of your posts. I found them really interesting. And I... It, only later I kind of learned your story because, um, you know, obviously you have these scars on your face and your body, but can you just tell people the story behind these scars? Yeah. Um, so yeah, my face and body, um, the scars, burn scars. So I sustained um, 45% degree burns to my face and body um, in the most unusual way <laughs> in a plane crash. So I was 10 years old. You know, um, in India with my family on holiday and um, we were traveling from Mumbai to Bangalore and basically my brother and I were told we we're going to be going to Goa well we saw Goa as India you know we just thought it's yeah. just beaches and palm trees and um, so we were excited to get on the plane um, thinking we we're going to Goa to only realize we were going to Bangalore and we were like Bangalore who's Bangalore like <laughs> what's even there so obviously reluctantly we did get on the plane um really reluctantly and then I'm fighting with my brother who's got you know he's got the window seat um obviously back in the UK you know we don't really see blue skies so to see blue skies and green fields was so fascinating um but anyway he got his way and then the next thing I hear my grandmother's voice which is unusual because I left my grandmother back in the UK two weeks prior to this accident. And um, she's basically telling me, Dulce, you've been involved in a plane crash. Mum, dad and Gumlesh, which is my brother, have passed away and you look different. In a nutshell, to a 10-year-old looking different, what does that even mean? Um, so in my head, She's just come on the plane. She's come to surprise us. And in my head, I'm still fighting with my brother. So in, in retrospect, nothing has changed. Then I hear a young medic's voice telling me, Dulce, don't worry, I'm going to be taking care of you. Um, the doctors are attending to the casualties on the airfield. Um, but don't worry, you're going to be fine. And it was like, well, why is the air steward talking to me about taking care of me? Like, so again, not hearing the word young medic, I just thought of this person as the air steward and fair enough, he's going to be taking care of me. Between the time of the accident, which is the 14th of February, 1990, it's not a date anyone could ever forget, but um, 
between that time and being flown back to the UK, it's just a matter of a few days. But being flown from India back to the UK, I'm now met with my other family members, like aunties, uncles and cousins, and pretty much the same kind of conversation as my gran. You know, Dorsey been involved in an accident. Mom, dad and Gamlesh have passed away. Um, you look different. You've got burns. And it's like, okay, now they've come to surprise us on the plane. So again, what they're saying isn't not registering. registering. Mm-hmm. But in reality, listening to them all is like, oh, wow, they've come on the plane, but not really hearing the sad, sombre tone in their voice. Um, so between the time of getting back to the UK and then getting to see myself was a mar- matter of a few weeks. Um, so I was in and out of the theatre, you know, treated for smoke inhalation, uh, skin grafts, um, skin taken out from different parts of my body uh, as donor site. So lots going on in that time. And it's got to a stage now they're going to remove the bandages from my eyes and I'm going to look at myself in the mirror. But I was so excited because between the time of me getting to the UK and at this moment where this mirror incident, I'm just Dulce, boisterous, loud, jovial. The essence of me is there. Mm-hmm. Um, the severity of what's happened, of course, I guess has either been masked, uh, denied within myself, or just wasn't talked about when my family were visiting me. And I remember being really, I remember being really excited, and the nurses and the doctors, I think, were like. I don't think she really realizes the severity of all of this. I don't think she realizes exactly what she's going to see. Um, but I was so determined. I was like, yes, just give me that mirror. I want to see myself. And you were, and ten, were you 10 years old at this point? I'm a 10, year, ten years old at this mm-hmm. point. And um, yeah, so I hold the mirror up and the person staring back at me wasn't me. And Dulce being a prankster... <laughs> I actually thought somebody drew this face on because surely no one can look like this. And, you know, red raw scars, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I do have quite big eyes and they were just, they were out there, you know, because I've obviously lost so much fat on my face, just sunken. And then the person moving the mouth and the eyes in the mirror soon realized that is me. Looked down at my left hand, which um, again was really red raw bandages metal rods sticking out the fingers to um to keep them straight so at that moment it's like okay something has happened I don't know what but naively or optimistically in a year's time this is all going to go away there's going to be this magic cloth it's fine it's no big deal now that phrase it's no big deal has pretty much got me through a lot of my life it's no big deal. So anyway, yeah, this moment happens. And then in hospital, you know, the nurses and doctors are used to seeing someone with burns. So they never treated me differently. They never treated me as this poor girl. Oh, gosh, special case or anything. Also, my family have had that much longer to get used to me looking this way. So they're not treating me any differently. In amongst their own pain of mourning, you know, they trying to keep it together for me. So Incredible, you know, it's just incredible how they held it together for me. So, you know, I'm now, you know, back to walking now, trying to be independent. I leave hospital, 
uh, what, four months after being in there. Uh, like, I don't want to use this term, but, you know, being re- released back into the community. But um, that's what it was. And that's when reality started. It's where the bullying started, you know, um, the name calling, people crossing the road in case they caught something, uh, kids throwing things at me to see what kind of emotions I have and reaction. Am I even human? Uh, just the foul language that was used to just describe me. So this, was this and, kids or adults? Um, both, both. Both? Both, yeah. And, you know, it's the journey to and from hospital that was tough. It's the journey to and from school. Um, school was my saviour and I'm really, really grateful and so blessed that I had a positive school experience because I know schools and bullying, you know, just pretty much yeah. really intense. So I was just so fortunate and fantastic support. Even now, you know, talking about it gives me goosebumps because if you're rewinding back 32 years ago, things like this weren't talked about. We so we certainly didn't have social media to talk about it or look at. So you know, everything's all textbooks and real life. And having never seen someone who looks like me, they navigated it so well. They made me feel inclusive. The most amazing friends. I still have those friends even now. Incredible teachers, just incredible support. But then leaving school and then experiencing bullying, it's just like living in just this really strange place. Then adolescence happening, of course. So again, bodies changing confidence is thrown around in this tumble dryer as well um and all those times that I was bullied when I tried to talk to anyone close to me like a family member it was difficult on the basis that well now you look this way you should be expecting this type of thing so with that in mind it became my norm it became my norm to wear those negative narratives so the word ugly suddenly I wore that I felt it I believed that's what I was and my self-esteem as I knew it was no more you know that's basically it so it's not like you were just developing this thick skin and and things were just not affecting you it was all going in and it was all going in yeah so I believed the bullies I believed um, you know, like my family, um, particularly my grandfather, so that's who I live with, um, you know, in hospital, especially in our South Asian community, it's so, everything's around marriage. Oh, it's, just, yep, yep, yep. it's like this end goal of life mm. is marriage. So at the age of 10, oh God, I'm not you, even fascinated marriage? by, yeah, I'm not even fascinated by boys or, Anything of that nature it wasn't in my thing. To now suddenly, who's going to marry her? Look oh, at her. My God. Who's going to date her? Basically, she's going to be single for the rest of her life. What's going to become of her? Now, that sitting on my conscious and subconscious suddenly became my norm. Therefore, everything became about the external. So there's negative words. I swallowed an air. Um, I believed it. Um, so all the goodness that I was doing 
I couldn't see that. I couldn't, I couldn't see the goodness of me. I, I could just see the external. So I was ugly, I was useless, certainly not someone anyone would date, certainly someone not that they would look twice about. So that just became my norm for such a long time that, you know, I, I went down the route of drugs and alcohol, but because there was no answer at the end of it, how that old, became how boring. How old were you when you, you, you went down? Um, probably started around the age of 14. Drinking um, and stuff? Drinking, yeah, just like something that was fun. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny now, but like, you know, there were sophisticated drinks, but, you know, like cocktails. But, <laughs> okay. you know, mm-hmm. in, in a cocktail, you got a few sorts of alcohol. So the and they're strong as well, just, yeah. Exactly. So... It was like, yeah, it's a great buzz. And then I felt confident and it's really good. Then you come home, the alcohol wears off, and then it's like, oh, God, I feel awful. So not only the side effects of the hangover makes you feel rubbish, but then I was feeling rubbish about myself. So then it's like I'll go again and go for that next hit again. Um, You know, that kind of went on and off for quite some time. Uh, The drugs pretty much didn't really, wasn't in my realm for a long time. but what did happen was I started to overeat and the thing with overeating, uh, comforting, whatever we want to call it, it's, it is an eating disorder about it because it's not as like headlining as an alcohol or drug abuse, you know, like, and I don't want to, I don't want to downplay any of this because, you know, addiction of any kind is, it's, it's severe and it's serious, but, food was easy to get hold of for me because I'd you know buy all this junk food take it to my bedroom eat it eat it eat it and as you know like the the weight's piling on because I'm not moving I don't feel good about myself and then the thing about depression is it's not like you wake up and oh I'm depressed you wake up one day and you're like far away from the person that you even recognize and that's when you think, okay, something's not right, but you still can't put your finger on it. So it just spiraled and spiraled. So I think my overeating probably started around the age of 13, 14, 15, maybe. And it just kept continuing, continuing. So as you can imagine, the weight was piling on. So as the weight's piling on, I'm not feeling good. On top of already not feeling good. So it's just like self-loathing, self-hate. Uh, you know, where I am now too, when I look back at that, it's just, I'm so about love now that did I really hate myself that much that I did that to my body in such a way? Um, But yeah, I did and weight piled on. And then around the year 2000, uh, a friend of mine, I was at college and where all my life people say, oh, you're so fat, you're so fat. Um, My friend said to me, I'm really concerned about your health. So that change of dialogue, that word, so that word, those words just changed everything for me because she didn't say you're fat. She goes, I'm concerned about your health. But that's such a caring way to say something, you know. Exactly that. So if we chose our words carefully, Mm. we could help so many more people want to change their life. Yeah. 
in whatever context. So the fact that she was concerned about my health, yes, she could have said, you know, I'm concerned that you've put weight on. I would have retaliated at that. But she said, I'm concerned about your health, to which I went, oh, she goes, this is not you. This is not you at all. You just, you just look down. You smile, but you look down and it's like, okay. So logically, I just went, okay, I'm going to go and join the gym. Like that's some sort of miracle, you know, and yeah. it's, it's not. But I joined the gym, went with my auntie, and then the eating starts to change because suddenly I don't want to eat certain food. So naturally, the weight was going to start slowly falling off. Uh, I met my Pilates instructor at the time. So Pilates has been my absolute savior in so many aspects of my life that even now the word Pilates, you know, it excites me. It just brings out so much joy because it, it basically helped me heal from the inside out. So I met my Pilates instructor. She, um, you know, she took over this class and she was actually a substitute teacher so when I met her and, you know, we're doing this class and she's telling the class, lift your leg. And I'm trying to lift my leg off the ground. And in my head I have, but she goes, can you lift your legs? And I couldn't. And that's when we realized how weak my body actually was. So of course I felt ashamed because there was people in the class who could do it and I couldn't. So instead of returning back to class, I asked her, do you do one-to-one? And she did. And, my body started to change. My confidence changed somewhat in that, wow, I could actually get up and walk now. I could walk from here to the bus stop without shortness of breath, you know, just little things like that. And then in the midst of all of that, so not only am I battling my confidence from a mental perspective, I was now thrown another challenge. So in, in the midst of that, I, I went on to do a degree. Um, in, um, at the time, it was, it was called complementary therapy, so specialising in uh, Pilates and therapeutic massage. Mm-hmm. But later on, I graduated uh, with biohealth um, sciences. And um, in the midst of doing my degree, I became ill. So, yes, the weight was slowly kind of falling off, but I was really, really ill and I couldn't work out why. So if anyone's, you know, been to the been to universities in the UK, especially those old ones, really old stuffy halls and very, you know, just that horrible feeling, uh, really muggy. So starting to feel like that, I went to the GP, measured my blood pressure, and it was sky high and on several readings. He's like, Well, for someone who's 26, that's really, really high. And for your body weight and size, it just doesn't, it just doesn't match. Anyway, um, it started me on um, high blood pressure tablets. Between taking the blood test and then going back to GP was only a matter of four days. I'm now rushed to A&E. Uh, my blood results came back that quick. The creatinine level in my blood was so high. But he never showed any alarming kind of gestures he was really calm it's like it could be you know an acute attack or it could be an infection he goes but you know a really good friend of mine at A&E in Royal London he'll take care of you don't worry and 
when he made that call, I look back on it now and know it sounded quite gravely. So although at that time it sounded friendly and he was just taking care of it and just being a great GP, I now know t- I now know it was quite a gravely tone, like you need to get her into A and E now. Mm-hmm. So got went to A and E really casual and you know, I'm just more concerned about getting back to my lecture theatres and uh, lectures, sorry. And here I am in A&E thinking, oh, it's just a quick blood test and I'll go home. Now, you know, in A&E, OK, I know things are different now, but even rewinding, you know, about 15, 16 years ago, the wait time was, what, three, four hours, give and take. Mm-hmm. I was admitted within 20 minutes in a ward. So I did feel like a special VIP. I'm not going to lie. You know, I thought, oh, Were you alarmed, though? Were you alarmed at that point? Like, why are they rushing me? No, like, literally, I just felt like a VIP thinking, well, I came via my GP, so maybe he's got perks or something, you know. Didn't kind of, I guess I still didn't realise the severity of all of this. Mm -hmm. Because in my head, it's like, yeah, they're going to check me over. I'm still going to have time to get back to my lectures. Because uni at that time... And I loved it. I was so engrossed in it. It just just gave me so much choice. So the fact that I've been rushed through, I thought maybe that's the reason. And then the consultant comes over and he's like, look, we're going to do a biopsy. This is what it entails. Uh, We're just going to do this, this and this. And you're going to be lying in this position for 24 hours. And that's that. So I was like, oh, so when am I going to get to go uni? Do I go uni and then come back? And is like no 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 we're going to be doing this soon so I was like so it still didn't register 24 hours still didn't register the severity of any of this and um yeah so they take the biopsy in this position 24 hours then the then the results come through at that point my aunt's visiting me and he says to me uh Dulce, you've got end-stage renal failure so when I heard that, I heard, you are dying. That's what I heard. But what I didn't hear was, you know, him to go on to say, look, it's not the end. Like, you know, there's, there's a transplant, there's dialysis, there are options. But I just heard you're dying. And I was like, of everything I've been through, am I really going to go in a hospital bed? Like, seriously, I don't, this happens to old people. This doesn't happen to someone who's 26. That's all that kept going through my head. I mean, he was great, my consultant at the time, and he was fantastic. He was just really reassuring. He goes, look, we don't know at what rate your kidneys are failing, but we will be keeping an eye on you now. So you're under the renal team now. Now, I only learned about renal function (laughs) at uni just now. Like, I know, fine, you know, they filter things and, but I never realized the other functions of the kidney until now. It's like, whoa, this is a big deal. So I've now gone home and sort of new, new ways like diet and things like that. Gone back to uni. I got diagnosed 2006 in April. And August of that same year is when my kidneys actually failed. So within four months, they went from 15% to 6 Um. So I booked a holiday just before all of this. I thought, just in case I don't get to go, when I start dialysis, 
I'll go now. Just a day before I was due to fly, I get a phone call. Uh, you need to come into hospital. We need to start preparing you for dialysis. So I was like, look, I'm only away for a few days. Can I come back? And she said, uh, well, I'm sad to tell you, you probably won't make the flight. And I was like, looked up at the sky and I was like, really? Two times on like in a flight? Like, what is it? Like, am I really chancing this here with planes? You know, and I that's my humor got me through a lot mm-hmm. of things. So again, that mm-hmm. was just frustrating but you know it's quite funny so yeah obviously I got rushed into hospital again and um, got fitted with a catheter in my abdomen started my training for dialysis I came home what three weeks later my back room the room I'm talking to you from now was a medical unit it was stacked up with all the equipment that I needed for my dialysis from the fluids to everything so what was a completely empty room was now a medical unit. It's like, whoa, my bedroom was turned into like this sterile place. From leaving hosp- you know, home three weeks ago to coming back, everything had changed. So, yeah, I dialyzed every night. Um, so I'd plug myself to this machine, uh, put my laptop and everything on the bed, do my work, go to sleep and then come off the machine in the morning go to uni and repeat. So that all went on and, um, you know, I graduated finally in 2008. Um, and then in the midst of renovating my house, get a phone call and, you know, Tulsi, we've got a, a kidney for you. And it's like 11 o'clock at night. I mean, who rings anyone 11 o'clock at night on the house phone? But yeah, and I thought it was a joke, to be honest, because it, again, like I said, 11 o'clock at night, who's going to give a kidney? But obviously realizing if it's a donor like Mm, it can happen like that right so I'm like well look I've got (laughs) meetings with the building builders and architects tomorrow (laughs) uh can I call you back and he's like uh you've got five minutes to decide this is (laughs) the fact that you were trying to sort your building work out when there's a kidney waiting for you is hilarious (laughs) exactly so because I never waited by the phone for this phone call life's just gone on and so you know and you've got to pay these architects and builders right (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so it's like look you've got five minutes to decide this is a near perfect match you've been on the list for three years like I was like well okay then I will next few days I'll be out so in my head I'll be out in three four days it's just it's only a minor operation I I have to I have to say I love your optimism in all of this (laughs) but again that's you see like that word you know it's no big deal it's pretty much got me through a lot yeah I can tell yeah and then yes I have this transplant and I'm saying to consultant I'll be home in three days it's like no way you're in here a week and I looked at him and I was like uh no because I've still got my house to renovate and I don't I I guess I still didn't think of this as anything big deal it's just a transplant but I guess obviously now I look back and I was like, it was a life-saving operation. Of course it is. Um, but I got out of bed, you know, so well. And he looked at me and went, how are you doing this without pain management? And I was like, and I looked at it and I went, that's where my Pilates came in, my core strength, my mental strength, just everything in my body was changing and I was feeling strong. I was walking to the bathroom. Yes, I was in pain, but 
nothing I haven't been through. And lo and behold, I was home in three days. So <laughs> I did it, you know, yeah. and I felt so accomplished. And I think he was just shocked because I was recovering so well. But this is when it all starts now again. So like curveball, another curveball. Um, what happened then? Yeah, so yeah, basically got home. So of course, you know, surgery pain. I thought it's painful, but I didn't like my bed. I didn't like my sofa. I was just so uncomfortable. And, you know, usually our bed and sofas are our saving grace. They're the ones that kind of, you just can't wait to be in there. Having had regular um, visits to the clinic, you know, looking at the blood results and stuff, um, it was fine on paper. And I was explaining about this pain and they're like, okay. And suddenly, because we have to do urine sample and that I wasn't passing a lot of urine. And they go, that's quite unusual because by this stage you should be. But what actually been happening was my body was collecting it and I was literally four times the size of it was. Mm-hmm. My body became really sensitive. You just couldn't touch me. Um, they did a scan and everything of the kidney and they realized that the kidney had a assist it was leaking urine basically so go we do need to operate because we this can't continue um so yeah so within two weeks of the transplant and now being operated again my transplant took what three hours plus an hour of recovery this second operation was 12 hours so way more severe than my transplant uh yeah they had to open me up again uh, it was called the it was called exploration of the kidney and reimplantation of the urethra. So that's kind of what I had. They took the kidney out, repaired the cyst, put it back in, uh, repositioned my bladder, took the old urethra from my old kidneys into into the to the new, uh, like complete basically com- completely rearranged the whole area, and then came out of recovery. And I couldn't feel my right leg. So the, the transplanted kidney is in the right groin. So anyway, I couldn't feel my leg. And I was so, I think I was more shocked and upset by that. Because I was like, there's no way I'm going home and my grandparents looking after me. The vision of them pushing me in a wheelchair just was too much. Um, and I was like, I have to walk out of here. Of course, they're alarmed as well, because it's like, he don't know if she's going to get mobility back or not. Um, I was assigned a physio around the clock. I was doing it one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning. I was just going and going and going. And by the third week, um, I was walking to the bathroom. And at the end of that third week, you know, I walked out the ward and went home. Um, so, yeah, like those loads of things happen in that time. In that time, you know, it was like diagnosed with potential TB to rejection to all sorts in that time to the most severe chest infection where the antibiotics had to be served in absolute blacked out situation because it was so sensitive to light. So much had been thrown in this time that I was like, was this transplant really worth all that? When when I was on dialysis, I was fine. I wasn't ill. I just 
it was inconvenient in the sense like to plug in every night, mm-hmm. but that's all it was. But anyway, um, got sick again at this point. Um, <laughs> just went out with my friends, just partying. And, you know, like having a little bit of a drink, I just thought maybe I just feel a bit hungover. Mm-hmm. I mean, I only had two and just not feeling great. But anyway, I've come back london got my hospital appointment and they looked at me and went you're still standing and i thought i thought it's in reference to me drinking i was like hang on i only had two but i'm like how do they know they weren't even there so what is this about they went we need to admit you right now i was like why like because i had two drinks they're like no your white blood cells you have no white blood cells i was like what does that mean they go well how are you still standing i was like I am I don't I don't know what you want me to say but um they rushed me into the isolation room and like you know pretty much like COVID in sense the head to toe gear with aprons masks you name Mm. it I was not allowed any visitors and I'm like all for drink having two drinks you know I was still in that kind of mindset and it wasn't until um I spoke to my consultant he goes we don't know what to do here. Your white blood cells is practically towards zero. We don't know. And they took me off one of my transplant medications. They go, we suspect it's this, but we don't know. At this point, it was all trial and error now. To the point, um, I turned my last rites red because I didn't know if I was going to make it. I felt fine. I didn't feel gravely, like I didn't feel ill, um, hungover, yeah, but not ill. <laughs> and um, yeah, to have my last rites read, but I couldn't tell nobody. I couldn't tell my family because it's like, how do you tell your family I'm dying? Mm. Like, and Especially like you said, your grandparents as well, because you don't want to yeah. make them worried. And then all knowing that like I've had a good weekend and the thing, you know, typical Asian thing, well, who told you to drink? Everything's a blame game, right? So you know I just didn't want to hear that so yeah I couldn't tell them and then watching my white blood cells go up it's like watching paint dry it it's just nothing was shifting it was just really slow going but they eliminated this medication at my plan and slowly the marker started to come up but I still wasn't kind of out of the danger zone uh so I was in that unit for three weeks like in the isolation room and suddenly it went up and they realized I was toxic to that medication. Um, but in that time, when I'm now back in the ward, is the most pivotal change in my life. Um, and I say that is because, you know, I'm not really religious in any way. Like, I mean, I've grown up in a Hindu setting, but it's not something I've practiced or into. But um, one of the nights, like, hearing loads of machines going off in the night and people crying in pain. This vision of Lord Krishna comes up and I was like, what's going on? Because it was so clear. It's like he was standing by my bed almost, like a visitor. And I was looking around thinking, can anyone else see him? Because no, at no point do I feel like I'm hallucinating. But obviously a lot of these medications can bring that effect on. But it was so clear. And he's standing like on the right hand side. And all he said was, surrender onto me what you cannot control. 
I'm like, who leaves that kind of message, right? Like in such a such a powerful words, there's literally those words are stuck with me. Surrender onto me what you cannot control. And I was like, again, like I said, I was looking around the ward, everyone's sleeping. So obviously they've not seen this, <laughs> you know, this Lord Krishna at their bed either. <laughs> um, and I hear those words and they were so sweet, but they were so powerful. I tried to go sleep because that was too scary for me. I was like, this is a bit weird now. Um, but they stuck with me. And yes, it's not an overnight change, but it's got me through the last 13 years because it's been that long since I've had my transplant where I let go of things I can't control now. Like I kept kept ending up in hospital even though I was doing all the right things. So what my body was going to do to what I wanted my mind, what my mind was telling my body to, they're two different things. Okay, so you've, you've had this, this, this vision and this thing said to you. Yeah. And then were you still in and out of hospital for quite some time after this? Yeah, after the hospital, after this hospital, pretty much the year of 2009, I was pretty much at the Royal London, you know. I think if I totaled how many days I might have been home, probably about a month, you know. Um, so I was just in and out, in and out, uh, open wound, like leaking all the time, lots of infections. So infection became a big part of my life at that time. Um, I had sepsis as well. Um, so I was on prophylactic antibiotics for about four years, four to five years after that. So it's just lots of infection in my body. So you can imagine any, even when we have a, you know, a regular UTI, how much our body just gets weak. So I had UTIs, chest infection, wound infection. So just all the time there's something. So my body was getting weaker and weaker. Um, but my mind was start, starting to get stronger and stronger again. Um, but, you know, when the two don't play ball, that's where it's tough, right? <laughs> um, now, even though my health stuff is going on, my confidence is still not the best. So it sounds really surreal when I say that, but, you know, my burns weren't a big deal anymore because now I'm, I am, you know, fighting to survive. But they're still there in that I don't feel good about myself. You know, it's because of my burns I don't do this. It's because, and I kept blaming my burns for certain things. But things started changing when I met um, Katie Piper. So, you know, I'm sure most people do know who mm -hmm. she is. Um, but for those who don't, you know, she's a burn survivor and um, she has an amazing charity, uh, the Katie Piper Foundation. So I came across them when I watched Katie's program. In, I think it was the year 2011, Katie and my friends, I think it was called. And I just thought, oh my gosh, there's a woman out there with burns and look how beautiful she is, but look at the amazing things that she's doing. Now, prior to that, I've not seen anyone with burns on TV and particularly not a woman. So I was like, oh, this is different and this is really cool. and please contact them if you need anything I just more. just want to say wow what an amazing woman she is and 
these are the kind of services I have and I would love to offer if you need any support. So I had rehabilitation in the background as my as in as my um, career. And I always linked Pilates and Burns like rehabilitation together. And eventually I kind of that's what I wanted to do. So I offered that and then they came back and said, well, we offer these services. And at the time it was um, hair restoration, medical tattooing and laser uh, for the scars. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't really think of any of those, but I was like, okay, no worries. They go, we'd love to invite you for a pamper day. So that happened and that was in the year 2012. Uh, So I met quite a few peers at the time. It was like hair, nails, makeup. It was just all about feeling good. And I got to meet Katie. But when she walked, it was like, hi, how are you? Hugged. And it was just, you know, just a person who was just so warm, so welcoming. And, you know, we didn't have to talk about our burns. That's what was beautiful. It's like I had a day off from talking about my burns. A day off of not explaining why I look the way I do. We got talking about all things girly, fashion, makeup, you know, just everyday things. And then I got invited to many more of these events. I became a volunteer at the, the charity. Um, also got offered, you know, the services that they offered. I got to use some of those. I've had my eyebrows tattooed. I've had, you know, hair restoration where I've had a wig. I've had uh, toppers. I've had all of that. I've had laser treatment, which I still have today. But more than that, this is when my confidence changed now. Because in these events that I was part of, I saw my peers and I saw the beauty in them that people have seen in me, but I couldn't I couldn't see that in me. So slowly I would come home and start looking at myself in a different way. And bit by bit, I'd start seeing certain scars and textures as beautiful as opposed to a hindrance or a burden. And that was the starting point of my confidence in a big way, body confidence. Um, Fast forwarding to year 2015, I got to be um, on a catwalk. So again, the 10-year-old Dulcie who had no one to look up to, no representation of anyone that looks like us particularly South Asian and Burns is now going to be on a catwalk it's like such a far away dream than I could ever imagine and it was at the I do home show in London I was with uh, seven other inspirational women uh, all different walks of life I mean I'm five foot nothing and one of the categories was swimwear and yeah I've been swimming but I wore a bikini and, you know, my body at the time was quite big. Um, and again, like, you know, with the confidence, the, the weight was there. And that's a lot of it was in from antibiotics and the steroids. But five foot nothing, being in the front stage in swimwear, that's as open and bare as anyone can that be. That is, that really is, yeah. And that took me, I mean, the first two, three shows, it was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why am I here? What's, you know, the judgment, people staring at me by the ninth show. It's like, it's nothing. (laughs) Yeah, It's nothing. It's, it was amazing. And that like, so confidence changed again. Um, I've done quite a few shows like that now. 
um, photo shoots, magazines, you know, that's just all part and parcel. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, where I am, you know, I don't even recognize that insecure Dulce anymore. I, don't, I know she was there, of course, because that was a part of me. Where I am now, like if you said put a bikini on, oh, sure, not a, not a problem. Then I, would, I was shaking because why, why? Well, I've taken beauty and the power back because I am my version of beautiful. I'm not yours. I'm not my neighbors or anyone. I'm mine. So I have no standard to live up to except my own. And yes, it's not an overnight process. And yes, it's taken so many uncomfortable situations to be here but I own the whole of me you know all of it um lumps mm. bumps and everything in between I'm a work in progress I've never said I'm a finished you know piece um and I will be a work in progress until I take my last breath and for me we all are we all are aren't we exactly that so for me that's why I take that pressure off I'm never like yeah I've made it yeah I'm done oh, god no there's so much more but I'm liking the piece as it is now. I'm live. I'm loving it. That's so good. Um, and you know, I do. I do wear a bikini on holiday. And as I say to many women who say to me, "How do you wear a bikini?" It's like, well, you put your leg through this, put your leg through that, your arms through that, and put it on. It's. It, and they're like, "No, but how do you wear it?" And I was like, "I don't know any other way." And I know what they mean is like how, in a confidence, how do you have the confidence you to do that? Yeah. I get it. So I said, no, look, the key thing is don't take pictures. Therefore, you've got nothing to scrutinize. And you just enjoy the moment being on the beach or the pool, wherever you're wearing it. Don't take pictures so you don't have to scrutinize yourself. Boom. And then when you get that stage when you don't mind taking a picture or you take it at a flattering angle, that's a different thing. So that helped me a lot. And then one day when I was ready to take pictures of me in a bikini, I do, but I, think, I don't do, live I for that. I think you put one up, didn't you, on your socials recently? As yeah, well. I just did that recently because mm -hmm. I was in Turkey and I, you know, I wore that. And, um, you know, even from that, I had people, I had someone in the hotel who who reached out and just was like, she was, was admiring my bikini. And she goes, I would never be able to wear that. It's just, um, you know, I just wear swimsuits. I have bought it with me on holiday and my husband bought it for me. And he's always telling me I'm beautiful, but I just can't wear it. And I was like, well, hopefully um, soon you will. Um, and I hope you do. And that's as much as I gave her. Two days later when I saw her, she was like waving at me. And I was like, a bit random. I mean, I didn't recognize her. And she goes, you don't remember me, but I was talking to you about the bikini. I was like, oh, my God. Wow, you're wearing a bikini. Oh, my God. It's oh, beautiful. Her, yeah. And I was like, where'd you get it from? And so she's telling me like her um, her husband got it from Debenhams. And then we just got talking about how we can't go into a Debenham store anymore and, and choose it because it's all online. But her husband had bought that for her. And she goes, oh, my God, I love it. She goes, it's so nice wearing it. I said, like, but you look incredible. And then I go, anyway, I'll leave you to it. And then just going to the bar to get a drink and her husband was there and he's like I just want to say thank you so much for um supporting my wife and encouraging her I said to be fair I actually didn't say much 
But he goes, whatever you did or didn't say, but it's helped because it goes for years. I've always said she's stunning. She's beautiful. I said, listen, millions of people can say you're beautiful until you don't feel it. It may just feel like empty words. And he goes, that's wow. He goes, that's quite useful to know. I said, she had to step into that. And he goes, well, I just want to say thank you. Now, Mm -hmm. I just wore it because I just wore it. But, you know, the thing with this is when you're confident, it will radiate in all aspects of you, whether you're wearing a bikini, whether you're wearing a dress, whatever you're wearing or not. And the difference here is it felt like the bikini was separate to me. It's not. We're all integrative. I can wear anything and make it look good. Why? Because I've got confidence. So there's none of that that looks good on me and that doesn't. You can pull off most things if you own that outfit and it sits on you rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't wear the color red before, um, especially that yellow tone red. And I still tried to steer clear of it on the basis that my scars would scream out loud because they would highlight them. So I stopped wearing red. Now I do wear red. And in the grand scheme, it probably still doesn't suit me, but I wear it in such a way that I make it suit me mm-hmm. because I own that red. So you see like that, it's these subtle differences. So the tool see 10 years old, you know, who would look at her, who would marry her, what's to become of her, self-loathing, self-hating to where I am now. So different. But all the stuff that happened in between had to happen to get to this stage. Um, I had to tear apart my whole character, everything about me. Not to rebuild, but to come home to who I really am. And everything I do is from my soul. It's from, you know, I'm driven by my heart and spirit. I'm not mm-hmm. driven by my mind. Uh, I do have a really strong mindset. So obviously that's why I'm here. But I'm driven by driven by my soul purpose and desire, which is to, to you know, spread love and compassion and to, to I guess, give people the permission to live authentically, like mm-hmm. live your authentic self. Yeah. Do I want to be anyone else? No way. Like, I just want to be me. This is Dorsey. There's no, I'm not modeled on anyone. I'm creating my own version. Mm-hmm. And we we all should be doing that because there's a place for every single one of us in this world with our skill set, with our everything, you know. And, 100%. 100%. And that's why I do what I do in terms of media. Like, I put myself in situations where I am open to trolls and bullies and negativity but instead of it as in a negative way it actually spurs me on to do more um and 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 those you know we've talked a lot about positive things and 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 that kind of thing and even people reacting to you in a positive way but do has that all made you stronger to people reacting negatively to you still because I'm guessing people still do the way that people are and you know what I mean some people never change right absolutely it's still there you know uh, a recent incident um which actually kind of left me a bit sad uh not for too long but just in the moment was uh, um yeah I went to Ibiza on the way back from Ibiza to London I was on the plane 
And you know, when you're in a plane, it's all forward seating. It's not like you're face to face with anyone. Yeah, so there's kids it's sitting in front of me. There's three kids and their dad's sitting on so the next row, but in the same same row, but on the next set. And it, the kid looks like, Papa, she looks so ugly. And I'm like, what? Like, give me a day off here. I'm on a plane home. I don't need this. So obviously I was quite annoyed. But these kids were just being annoying in that they were making noise. They kept doing it. So his brother in the middle, so he was on the window seat and I was sat by the window as well. His brother in the middle kept looking through the gap and he kept looking and he was trying to laugh. But when I gave him eye contact, as in like, really? He sort of piped down. Now, I just was like, if I was to confront him, it would have got a lot worse, personally. So I called the um, air steward and I said to look, I want to report this because I'm not going to accept this. Also, the passenger sitting next to me on my row, she was also made to feel uncomfortable as well. So obviously it wasn't just me. But I think she was just kind of not taking it, but she didn't know what to do. And like with me, it's like this is, I don't want to use the word part and parcel, but I'm, I'm used to this and I, I don't want to be used to it, but I am. So I called the estuary. I said, listen, I'm not going to accept this. I need you to speak to them and the dad and I need it addressed because I won't tolerate this. And so anyway, so she must have had a word and to the dad. Now, this was a great opportunity for the dad to educate the children, but no. Quieten them down, told them, don't look back. And that was it. And I'm like, wow. This was a great opportunity for you to educate your child. And no. But this, chi- this child was also doing it to the passenger in front. I don't know what was said, but quite a few people had complained. Now, you think at this stage, you would be saying something to your child somewhere along the line. Well, I mean, I, I, I you, you put this post up on Insta and I, and I read it. And that's one of the, the reasons which... I kind of it, it really kind of got to my heart because I am a parent, right? And I just thought if if that was my kid, first of all, I would be so embarrassed, and I feel like I would have taught my kids better uh, up till before that point anyway, so that wouldn't happen. But I would be so embarrassed, and like even the word "ugly" to throw around the word "ugly" is like I just, I find that bizarre when people say "ugly." Oh, you're ugly. This is ugly. It's like really like the only ugly thing that I say to my kids do you know what's ugly the only thing that ever can ever be ugly is attitude inside of you yeah and that's what I've said to them and then sometimes you think oh are they listening are my kids listening but then uh my daughter the eldest one who's 13 she actually came back from school one day and said to me oh the girls at my school they were being really horrible and they keep calling people ugly they keep they were talking about other girls and saying that they were ugly like who do they think they are and that's so horrible and I thought to myself do you know what the fact that she's actually coming back and saying and it made her feel uncomfortable that somebody's talking about someone like that means Mm. that she's aware that that's not okay and that you're you're and that is a that parent should have said more than just yeah don't turn around yeah exactly that and I was like wow the rest of the journey was pretty decent. And then just towards the end, uh, as we're leaving the plane, he looks around, he starts laughing at me. 
And I looked at him and I pierced my eyes and all my messages that I wanted to say to him via the eye contact. And he looked down and I was like, you will remember this face. You will remember it. And I didn't say anything after that uh, because, you know, I still want to keep my professionalism. <laughs> I want to keep my job and be on this side of legal. <laughs> <laughs> but they could have been a lot worse. Um, but I'm ensured he remembered me because he will see that every time he closes his eyes, he will see this face and it will be a reminder. His brother was fine. The one who was trying to laugh but didn't, I could see because he was telling his brother, stop saying things, stop being annoying. So he was sat in the middle and I think he thought he would join in with his brother, but he also knew it didn't feel right. So, yeah, that was uncomfortable, but it was more. And the reason I posted that, because, again, look, I experienced that. But the reason I, I, I shared that is, like, I'm done hiding and I'm done trying to justify why someone does that. Who's justifying things for me? No one. Back to where my, you know, when I was talking about bullying and my family saying, well, it's part and parcel. No, because the campaign work that I do now we're changing faces, you know, leading charity in the UK for people with a visible difference is it's not okay and it's not acceptable. That's the bottom line. That's why I put that post up because it's not acceptable. And if someone says their kids being kids, then I want them to be right in front of me and saying, why is that acceptable? Because kids are being kids. Kids are being kids is when they're having fun, playing around, exploring the world not when they're being nasty and mean, because somewhere along the line, they've picked up what they think of as ugly. And another campaign that has come out of that is, uh, I was part of was last year, I'm Not Your Villain, which is about um, using visible differences in a villainous character. How does somebody know, how does a child know what is ugly? Mommy, look at her. How does... How do they know what er is if the parent haven't taught them that? They've seen it somewhere in media. So I TV never program. thought about that actually. And I'm now thinking, I'm only, and this is why it's so important what you're doing because now I'm thinking about it because it is true, isn't it? You yeah, because you've not said it to your child, but they've picked yes. up, oh, the scary person's got a visible difference. So the campaign work that we do is to have better representation out there in the film, media, TV, you know. Why can't someone with a visible difference be a love character, main character, someone making a cup of tea in the background, minding their own? Why do they always have to be villainous? That's not to say we're getting rid of complete villainy and, you know, they don't have a disfigurement. But come on now. We're just one script away from a decent film. Like, you can change this. Mm. There can be backstory why the main character has a visible difference. It's simple. It's really not rocket science. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's so important, the work that you're doing. And and you know what? I just want to say that all the things that you've told me, your story, everything that you've been through, okay, all the ups and downs, health issues, coming to terms with your, your um, scars and, you know, your burns and everything, you're going through this, ha- having actually lost your parents and your brother. Like, 
the actual you know what I mean because we didn't talk about that that much but I just want to for people that are listening to just highlight that as well that as well as all this and being a child who's dealing with having this happen to their face their skin and everything you've lost your family at the end of the day yeah and just to navigate obviously from the age of 10 without any kind of parental support um yeah just I like I didn't have anyone to turn to like you know would have turned to my parents or something or a parent I didn't have that I was parenting myself from the age of 10 you know being my own mom my own dad my own sibling um did you live with your grandparents yeah I still live with my granddad even now but you know there's complete different generation obviously culturally very very different we don't talk about things it's brushed under the carpet so if I was crying one day because I went to my mom and dad, it was like, well, what do you need to cry for? They've gone now. You know, it's kind of very black and white. Mm. So again, I couldn't share things with anyone because the judgment, uh, the lack of empathy uh, just just wasn't there. So, you know, I had to do all that on my own. Um, and also, you know, I do want to highlight the fact that I didn't have any kind of mental health support. Mm, like I, I didn't have counselling. Mm. You know, I didn't have counselling. I didn't have no psychological support. You know, I did that on my own. Um, I did that on my own. And it's not to say, you know, it was a brave and heroic move. Far from it. It's just I didn't know where to go. And a lot of these things weren't offered to me. So I didn't know where to go. Because I I think you're a Uh, similar, it sounds like you're a similar age to me. And I know for sure that we would never think of anything like that then for anything. No. To help help or anything. We're rewinding what 32 years ago from accident you know even if something was offered to me in hospital I don't know if my family said yes or no to it it certainly wasn't offered to me directly like Tulsi would you like to talk to someone so I definitely remember that and also you know thinking about 32 years ago to now those types of services that mental health type services weren't so massive it's only because we're now making a noise now yeah that we can talk about it or taking away the stigma around it you know if we, before if you'd go to see a counselor or a psychologist it was like everything was all hush hush and you know something like there's something wrong with you and it's like now if you said i'll see a counselor it's different um, you know um it's more like oh well, that's really good good you're getting support whereas before like why do you need to see someone like that oh there's something wrong with you you know like mm, there's so yeah. the stigma but anyway I, I wasn't offered that and um if anyone listening to any of this and you know is in need of talking to someone or seeking help do do go and seek that professional help because it's so vital it's so crucial um if I had to do anything again, it would be that I'd get support for me on that level. Mm. Be my confidence wouldn't have taken compared to what it has done. Um, you know, but yeah, so I did do it on my own, but I, you know, I went on to do a counselling certificate course. And I think that's what I needed. Dulcia, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to my podcast and sharing your story. And I, I found it just so interesting and emotional like everything that you've been through but you know the fact that you've chosen to be a survivor and and 
I'm just happy in the place where your confidence is now. And, you know, even when I said hello to you, like you can, you actually exude that kind of confidence and positivity, you know, and when I've seen kind of clips of you on TV and stuff and you do, you know, you like your clothes, you're always, you know what I mean? Look like slaying in your like, you know, fashions (laughs) and whatever. So, um, so yeah, it's really good to see. And I'm sure that you are inspiring people. Um, so can, can you just, um, share like website social media details in case people want more info about what you do and um just about your story really yeah i mean i've got a website um com uh, i'm on instagram you know tulsi divine 108 and i'm on facebook as tulsi vagjani so yep they're all there cool okay i think you just cut out a bit with the website can you just repeat the website again yes the website is www.tulsivagiani.com so that's t-u-l-s-i-v-a-g-j-i-a-n-i okay thank you so much dulcy um it's been so nice talking to you thank you thank you for having me no worries and thank you for listening um you know i hope that you have found this inspiring uh, please do share this podcast as i always say subscribe if you haven't already and you can follow me also on social media at sisterhood of mommy and perfect or at rena d annabelle on instagram there's a mommy and perfect facebook page as well um but yes i will be back next week take care of yourselves bye